For several years now, the Veterans Affairs Department has operated a grant program to help disabled veterans adapt their homes. The program is called Specially Adapted Housing Assistive Technology. And for how it works and where the money goes, we turn to the program chief of policy, Jason Latona. Mr. Latona, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but these are not grants directly to veterans for their houses, but grants to people that can develop technologies that could be incorporated into veterans' homes? Uh, Yeah, Tom, thanks for making that distinction. The names are very similar between two programs. The Specially Adapted Housing Grant Program is to adapt homes for seriously disabled service-connected veterans, whereas the Specially Adapted Housing Assistive Technology Grant Program is to foster innovation and new technology to assist our veterans. And what is a typical grantee then? Are they technology developers in information or in, I don't know, developing bathrooms and kitchens that are adapted to veterans and that kind of thing? Well, you know, the SAAD grant provides grant funding for individual developers and entities. So these are groups that are doing research, uh, developing technologies and trying to bring to market valuable products and their innovations, which we hope will help our very seriously disabled veterans in their homes. You know, some products are available currently in the public market. Some are not. But I also want to specify that we're not just looking for high-tech innovation for the SAHAG grant program. We're also looking for innovative construction technologies, products, and methodologies that could also help. So there's a bunch of different possible use cases that we look at for the SAHAG grant. And what are some examples of things that have been developed in the past that have ended up in homes for veterans? Yeah, great question. Since 2016, when these grants started, They resulted in the introduction of several new products to the accessibility industry to improve the lives of veterans. So a few of those include an AI-powered mobile scanner and reader application. That's called SuperSense. That's an application a veteran can download right to their phone, and it enables visually impaired users to read text independently. We've also got a uh, really cool product. It's an adapted modular bathroom called the Dignity Bath, which provides a safer bathroom environment permits home adaptations in a fraction of the time it takes to complete a traditional renovation project because it's a modular. We also have a robotic overbed that's being used for beds now. It's an overbed table, rather. It's for recliners, wheelchairs, and bed. It's called a robo-table that allows users to actually independently position and store mobile devices or use a remote or accessible switch uh, from their bed or their chair. So we've had several products that have actually made it to market. And who develops these? Are they the traditional companies that like the bathroom fixture manufacturers, some of the large ones, or is it design studios? Or what does it look like, the population applying for these grants? It's all the above. We have educational institutes. We've had like Auburn University, St. Ambrose University, University of Pittsburgh, several universities that come in and different think tanks. We've had other corporations, public corporations that come in and apply. We have small innovative entrepreneurial developers that just have this one product they've been working on and they run the gamut institutions for education, but we also have veteran-owned small businesses and all different types of groups. And that's one of the things we love about the grant is it's attracting a whole gamut of potential awardees. And these are developmental grants, so they come up with ideas, and then what's the process by which they become commercialized and available eventually for people that need them? 
so the VA assists with obviously the grant funding. So once we receive all the proposals, we evaluate the proposals and we use a board of subject matter experts on the VA side who are specializing in assistive technology and new products that can help us determine which is most feasible and that'll have the biggest impact for our veterans. Once we award the grant, we kind of monitor the development through the developmental life cycle and we assist as needed. We will also provide contact to other programs that have to do with technology insertion in the VA. So these innovators, once they have a feasible product, can speak to the VA about its applicability. Obviously, with R&D, a lot of these things don't come to fruition either. So we don't have a lot of products that are marketable at this time. We still have several companies that are working on getting it to market. But the um, up to $200,000 that these individual innovators get help them along their way. We're speaking with Jason Latona. He's the chief of policy for the specially adapted housing program at the Veterans Affairs Department. And what are some of the gaps, do you think, in this type of assistive technology that you're hoping to fill? Well, actually converting an idea to a product that's marketable seems to be the most challenging thing, and these grants are no different. We hope that the money provided by these grants and the guidance provided by our team can help assist them, but it's not a guarantee. So it really comes down to how good the idea is, how talented the subject matter experts are on the awarded side, and uh, what their drive is to get this to market. But I mean, are there specific areas of technology that you feel need to be developed to help veterans with particular problems they might have? Great question. Yeah. These days we see a lot of challenges with veterans who are dealing with different levels of blindness to be able to live independently. The smart home concept is very big in industry right now, but it's still so unique and kind of a niche market that it's very expensive. So what we're hoping for is to see more innovations in that area, the smart home market that will actually drive the price down a little bit and make it more accessible for our veterans who are service-connected disabled. Also, we'd like to see some more innovation in the adaptation construction piece. Just like with technology, adaptive construction is still kind of a niche market. Builders are still trying to figure out how to make money doing it. So we'd like to see more innovation that would make that easier. Adaptive construction meaning what? What does that mean? The actual physical adaptation of a veteran's home to make it accessible. So the little changes we need to make in veterans' houses that will help them live more independently, whether it's using voice command to open and close blinds, to unlock doors, more high-tech appliances to make sure that veterans are safe, controlling the utilities in their homes, that type of thing. Sure. And I guess some basics like aren't really technology, but just making homes with wider doors to begin with. Absolutely. That whole design innovation is a big deal. Are the front and rear doors accessible? Are the doorways wide enough and the hallways wide enough if you're using a wheelchair? That type of thing. Also, is your bathroom accessible? One of the biggest issues we see out there is that a bathroom is not fully accessible. And that's everything from the ability to have a roll-in shower, to have a roll under Xanity, to be able to toilet safely and independently. These are all things that we're really interested in. It strikes me that a lot of these technologies have far wider application than simply veterans because as the population ages and becomes more infirm or just there are more Americans and therefore more people with disabilities, these are universally applicable. Definitely. Yeah, the the concept of universal design and living in place and aging in place are big concepts these days. So these type of products that are applied to veterans that we use VA grant funds to develop can definitely be used on the wide open market. It's not just something that applies to veterans, but it has a much wider applicability. Because I imagine there are other agencies, health-related agencies somewhere in the vast apparatus that is NIH and HHS 
there must be programs looking at the same thing. Do you collaborate with them or do you have a way of discovering who they are in the first place? We do. And a lot of it's cold calling on our part, but there are also large events. And whether it be the International Builder Show and National Kitchen and Bath Shows or different kinds of industry outreach environments, we try to take the time to do outreach and connect with nonprofits and for-profit corporations alike to find out what's out there and what's being developed. And then we also like to go ahead and make sure they know what the VA provides that can maybe assist with pushing these products into the market. And VA has just announced the SAHAT grants now for 2022. Has that been held up because appropriations have not come through until now? No, the grants uh, award pretty much the same time every year. So right now they're posted to grants.gov and we're searching for proposals. We have several that have already been submitted. The cutoff time for fiscal year 22 is actually March 18th, this Friday, and awards will be announced sometime in April. And then of course there's the veterans themselves. And if a veteran would like to get access through a grant to do his or her own home. How does that happen? The VA offers specially adapted housing grants to provide physical adaptations to eligible veterans' homes. So if veterans feel that they have some kind of accessibility need in their home due to a service-connected disability, then we really would like to hear from them. So the overall intent of the SAH grants to provide a better quality of home life for our most severely disabled veterans And how these exactly take shape is obviously unique to each situation, just as each veteran and their needs are unique. And we do our best to tailor design features to meet the individual needs. But we also have a set of minimum standards, which we call our minimum property requirements that we will deliver. So having freedom and safety to come and go from your house is one of those minimums. And it's required at the end of every SAH grant project. So if you qualify for an SH grant, you can get up to $101,000 this fiscal year to make modifications to your home. Uh, to find out more, please search us on our website by searching VA Specially Adapted Housing Grants on any web search. You'll be able to find us or reach out to your local veteran service organization or you can call us. We'd love to speak to you. All right. Jason Latona is Chief of Policy for the Specially Adapted Housing Program at the Veterans Affairs Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview together with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective about my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.